Hello, welcome to Jane and Jesus, where my guests and I talk about all things Jane Austen, and I talk a little about Jesus. A lot of people don't know that Jane Austen was a serious Christian and that her novels have a lot to teach us about not only the Christian faith, but also general life wisdom too. I'm your host, Karen Swallow Pryor, and on this episode, I'm speaking with Rabbi Ari Lam, Orthodox rabbi, scholar of ancient Christianity, and host of the phenomenal podcast, Good Faith Effort. We'll be discussing Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, and I can't think of anyone better than Rabbi Lam to mine the wisdom of scripture in order to examine this complicated character of Austin who allures us with his charm, but repels us with his pride, something the Bible has a lot to say about. Here's our conversation. So let's begin right at the beginning with Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. How does that verse resonate in Jewish tradition? It's a phenomenal question. So the way that I think about it is that pride goeth before destruction is sort of the flip side of the biblical revolution itself. You know, if you had to pinpoint one intervention that the Bible makes in human affairs that changes the entire world, all of society forever, it's the moment when God says, or when the Bible says, so God made man in his image, in his image did God create man. Why is that such a revolution? The Bible is not the first tradition of wisdom that introduces to humans the idea of human beings being created in the image of God. There were lots of traditions that believed that human beings could be created in the divine image. The only difference, although it obviously makes all the difference in the world, is that in every other prior tradition, and in fact, in many traditions subsequent, it was only specific people who were created in the image of God. The king, prince, aristocrat, priest, magistrate. The Bible comes along and says no. Every single human being, regardless of station, status, creed, language, ethnicity, race, level of intelligence, what have you, every single one bears the divine image. It is the ultimate leveler, the ultimate unifier. In fact, in Jewish tradition, that verse, which which begins the story of the book of man, is identified as the most important verse in the entire Bible. And it's for that very reason that the Bible was always considered so threatening to the established authorities throughout the ages. In fact, the famous, you know, King James Bible, why does King James commission that translation of the Bible? It's because the Wycliffeites who had translated the Bible into English beforehand had sort of highlighted all of these passages that opposed abuse of power and that questioned people who would restrain human freedom. And sort of the King James translation is, is the attempt to sort of get rid of all of those marginalia and all of those those attention-getting passages. The irony, of course, is that the King James Bible makes its way into America and becomes sort of the urtext of human freedom. But what all of this tells us is that there is no justification when it comes down to it. God himself proclaims that every single human being is equal to every single other human being. And therefore, the ultimate rebellion against that revolution that the Bible introduces into human affairs 
is pride, is arrogance, the idea that I am fundamentally better than somebody else. And so why is it that pride goeth before destruction? It is a natural consequence, a natural conclusion of the idea that all human beings bear the divine image and therefore all human beings are of equal worth. So Jane Austen really is, as I've been saying all along, a profound theologian. And she was writing in this delightful novel about one of the most important theological points in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And, and the truth is, like, the beauty of some of the greatest literature of all time, and Jane Austen's such a phenomenal, poignant example of this, is that the greatest writers are always tapping into something elemental in the human condition. And this is, is just such a great example. Well, moving from that verse about pride going before a fall, one of the most interesting recurring moments that I have in the classroom when I'm teaching this novel to college students is usually this moment when we discuss Mr. Darcy's proposal to Elizabeth Bennet. And the class generally divides. Now, these my classes usually, because they're English majors, they tend to have more females there, but we'll have, you know, a few male students as well. But the class will become divided on whether or not Mr. Darcy's proposal is wonderful or not. And the majority of students, again, mainly females, will think this is a horrible proposal. And I will tell all the guys in the class, you know, do not follow this example. But often there will be one or two students, often male, who think that Darcy's proposal is just worthy of imitation and just so wonderful. So I just wanted to ask what you think of Darcy's proposal to Elizabeth and how, you know, it just culminates so many things that have been going on in the novel. I suppose I have two reactions to Darcy's proposal, and they're sort of inconsistent and in tension with each other. So on the one hand, Mr. Darcy's proposal is emblematic of that very pride that, that we're talking about, which is he is sort of convinced before anything else that he's better than her. And to the extent that the entire proposal is kind of framed with that as the premise, it's intention with what God wants us to think of ourselves and of others. So my first instinct would be to sort of say, this person is, is you may have other redeeming qualities, but he's certainly unbiblical in that respect. But one thing that I have always thought, and not just about Mr. Darcy's proposal, but just the brilliance of the novel in general is like, it's all from, it's all from a particular perspective. Like we have no idea what's going on in his brain. Um, this is how the proposal is experienced. To me, that kind of teaches us two lessons. On the one hand, from Mr. Darcy's perspective, it's, it's so important whether he intended to wound or not. The effect of his words was such that it was taken as wounding by the person he's addressing. And it's so important for us to constantly be aware of like how our words are landing with other people. It's not enough just to be righteous. You know, righteousness is, is ultimately an interpersonal, has an interpersonal element to it. But at the same time, it's easy for us as like observers of this courtship to sort of hear one side of the story and then extrapolate from that to what Mr. Darcy must be thinking. And, you know, it's given the power and balance between the two. It's not unfair. So I'll, at the end of the day, I wouldn't judge somebody for doing it. And I do it myself, as I just said. But, you know, there is something anytime you read a novel that's written from a particular character's perspective, there is something wonderful. You know, it's like sort of a seven samurai thing to be able to say, hmm, I wonder what's going through the heads of these other characters. You know, it's kind of like when you read George R. R. Martin's novels and each chapter is written from the perspective of a different character and you sort of get to say, 
oh, like, I know what Daenerys Targaryen is thinking at this particular point, but I wonder what these other folks are thinking. Like, I wonder what's going through the head of a Dothraki, you know? So I suppose those are my thoughts on Mr. Darcy. Yeah, well, I'll take your word for it on reading George Martin. (laughs) (laughs) But this point in in the novel is so pivotal because what Darcy's proposal does is it wounds Elizabeth, as you said, but it wounds her mostly in her pride, which is sort of the the paradox. And I had a recent uh, social media discussion about this very point. And, and some people think that Mr. Darcy's proposal was needlessly insulting to Elizabeth's family. And Yes, maybe he could have delivered it differently, but in this world, the behavior of of Elizabeth's family really would have an impact on Darcy and her if they did marry. And so it it was a legitimate concern that he had. And I will often use this moment in my classroom to tell my students who are young and idealistic most of the time and often thinking about marriage. And I will tell them that they will marry a family, not just a person. And Darcy knew that. And the cool thing, by the way, is that everyone likes, I feel like an extension of what we were talking about earlier is that everyone likes to imagine themselves as Elizabeth and nobody wants to think that they're the Mr. Darcy. You know what I mean? You know, so everyone wants to be the one who says, I have been wounded and now I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel and how you wounded me. And your job now is to go and correct yourself so that you can then come back to me as a reformed gentleman. And again, you know, maybe the novel would play out differently in 2021 than it would back in the day, but No one likes to think of themselves as having to be the Mr. Darcy, like having to sit down and think, hold on, that interaction that I had planned didn't go as I intended it to go. And now it's my responsibility to work on myself and reform and and repent and so forth. So that's one of the coolest things about Austin's novels is that they kind of force you to think about perspective. Speaking of thinking of ourselves as Mr. Darcy, which we really, really do need to, it occurs to me that Mr. Darcy's path gels nicely with the Jewish idea of teshuva or atoning for our sins and Yom Kippur, the Jewish holiday of atonement. So what do you think? Is Fitzwilliam Darcy um, just a repenting Jew? (laughs) So one of the really fascinating things about how the Jewish tradition thinks about repentance is that it actually is an example of time travel. What do I mean by that? So typically the way that we think about repentance or kind of like the way that it plays out in all of our popular, you know, debates and discourse is that repentance is I did something wrong. I say I'm sorry. I fix my behavior. And the next time it happens, I do something different. I behave differently. So it's a way of like self-repair. And there is that element, of course, in the Jewish tradition of, of repentance. But there is actually a sort of deeper mystery of repentance, as it were, that appears throughout the the centuries when Jews reflect on repentance. And that is that what repentance does is it doesn't just change your future. It actually changes your past. If you repent properly, what God promises is that he actually will change who you are. It's a question of identity. What you are supposed to truly be and genuinely be able to say, if you put in the work and, and with God's help, What you are supposed to be able to say at the end of the repentance process in the Jewish tradition is, I am no longer that person who sinned or who transgressed. I'm a fundamentally different person. My backstory is different. My history is different. It's as if I'm a newborn child. And now I have a different, an entirely different path in front of me. 
And so what's interesting to, to reflect on is that Mr. Darcy kind of has the first half of that. And I'm not sure if he has the second. And Austin kind of prompts us to go even further, right? Because what Mr. Darcy does is he laudably, he listens to Elizabeth's criticism. He reflects on how he behaved. And then he kind of comes back more determined than ever to respond to her challenges. You know, and he wants, I think like the phrase is like gentleman-like manner, right? Like that's what he wants to embody. But even when all is said and done, the same kind of hierarchies are still in place. Mr. Darcy is still Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth is still Elizabeth. I wonder what it would be like to say, I actually am going to be an entirely different person. You know, when, when critiqued by Elizabeth, how do I actually not just parry the critique, but actually internalize it, become an entirely different person? What Yom Kippur in the Jewish tradition and in the biblical tradition more generally, sort of as a day of, of atonement and purgation, what it does is it actually calls upon believers in God to engage in a total transformation. Like how often in the course of our daily lives do we actually get to transform ourselves? Like it never, it's magical, right? Never happens. What Yom Kippur and biblical atonement in general and what our relationship with God allows us to do is actually slip the bonds of human frailty and rebirth ourselves. I mean, it's, it's something that not even contemporary technology can accomplish with all the magic that it can do. So I think what, you know, if I could have one takeaway from that sort of interplay between Mr. Darcy's repentance and repentance in the Jewish and the biblical tradition, it would be that repair is the first step of repentance, but transformation is the second. That's so powerful. And of course, you know, it's become uh, sometimes an empty phrase, but it's really crucial in the New Testament. Jesus calls this being born again. And you yeah. just described really, I mean, we've sort of truncated all that you said into this into this brief term that sometimes gets used so much we forget what it really means. And you've just described it so beautifully. I think that's really powerful. So let's just talk a little bit about the marriage itself and and the role that it has in the novel, because I do want to get your perspective as a rabbi on this. But first, I, I just want to kind of explain for those who might not be familiar, for Christians, we understand marriage to be you know, not just something that is wonderful for human beings on this earth, but it also has this symbolic or metaphorical, you know, really more than a metaphor, significance as a picture of Christ who represents the bridegroom and the church who is the bride. So for Christians, marriage means so much more even than this beautiful thing that it is in our earthly human existence. But I wanted to ask you as a rabbi, what you think of what Austin does with marriage in this novel, especially in the way that she shows that marriage really is a beginning of a journey not just the end. Oh my gosh, it's such a it's such a rich text to draw from. Marriage in the Jewish tradition is actually marriage is a translation of a relationship that occurs in the Jewish tradition, right? So there's no there's no word in the Jewish tradition 
that sort of like a cognate with marriage per se. But there are two terms that are that are somewhat interchangeable, even though they're they're slightly different and they refer to slightly different stages of the relationship. That if you had to translate them into English, would be marriage. And those two terms are kidushin and nisuin. Kidushin literally translates as sanctifications, and nisuin translates as burdens. And those relationships actually create what in sort of like English common law or, or sort of in, in the Greek church, we would just call marriage. Those two relationships occur in stages. Kidushin comes first, Nisuin comes second. Sanctifications comes first, and burdens come second. Sanctification is the first step of a marriage because the root of the word Kidushin is kadosh, which means holy. And holiness is the way that we describe the marital relationship precisely because what holiness is about is separation. You think about the way that holiness appears in the Bible and the biblical tradition. Holiness is always when you set something apart to show how, how special it is. So, for example, the temple precincts are holy. And, you know, you can't enter into the temple precincts or only the high priest can enter into the temple. And there, there are certain parts of the temple where even the high priest is not allowed to go other than under very specific conditions. You know, there are certain foods that are holy and, and you know, you can't just make regular use of them. So the marital bond is, is holiness comes first because there's this moment of, of passion. There's this moment of, of joy and celebration. And it sets you as a couple apart from every single other person in the world. And in fact, from a, a, a legal stand, from a regulatory standpoint, it's at that moment when kiddushin occurs, when sanctification occurs, that the members of the couple are not permitted. Officially, from that point on, they're not permitted to be with anybody else. That's the moment when it occurs because you're set apart separately. And that is sort of the, if I could compare that to a moment in the national salvation history of the Bible, that's Sinai, right? It's pyrotechnics. It's a fire and light show. It's fireworks. It's the sound of the trumpets. It's the revelation of God. It's the word of God coming down from the mountaintop. It's so exciting. It's unbelievable. There's a reason that the book of Exodus declares that in preparation for the revelation at Sinai, the entire mountain is holy and the people, the Israelites had to make themselves holy for, for several days beforehand. It's because holiness is, is joy, it's ecstasy, it's in the moment. Then comes Nisuin, the burden burden of a marriage. Because at a certain point, that ecstasy, that joy is going to wear off. Because it's, no, it's only natural. And then you're left with the journey that you're going on together. You're left with trying to take, to capture those moments of joy and bring it into everyday regular existence in a way that's sustainable. And sort of that's the moment in the relationship where the, the husband and wife are, are not only prohibited to others, they're permitted to each other. They're permitted to come together to each other because it's only once you recognize that that moment of joy and ecstasy has to be transmuted into a regular life that you actually belong together. And if that moment has a parallel in sort of the larger narrative and salvation history of, of the biblical story, it's the moment after the revelation at Sinai when God almost immediately says, you have to build a temple. Why? What the temple does, what the tabernacle does as it travels throughout the desert and it sojourns with the Israelites the temple takes the pyrotechnics of Sinai and brings it into the everyday routine. It's daily sacrifices, it's daily rituals, it's, it's bathing in a ritual bath, what in the Christian tradition you would call, might call baptism, right? So it's, it's all of these regular things that you have to do every day. And it is a burden, right, if you look at it from that perspective. 
but it's it's the burden that makes life worth living. If you're not carrying anything with you in this life, then at the end of the day, you're penniless. You have nothing, right? Life is only worth living if you're carrying something or somebody with you. And you have to do it in a way that makes it bearable and doable every single day. So the over, I think if we have, you know, one challenge in the contemporary age, it's like the over-romanticization of that first revelatory cinetic moment in the marriage. It's all love and joy. And it is important. It's integral to the, to the success of the relationship. But then it has to be followed by burden, by nisuin, by carrying something, each other, together, every single day, taking that joy and ecstasy and regularizing it, normalizing it. So I think that's kind of the, the way the Jewish view of marriage shakes out. That is so beautiful. And it's just so fitting for what Austin is doing because, you know, one of the common places about her novels is that they deal with just sort of the ordinary small world of the main characters and just everyday life. And yet there is something so beautiful in that. Yes, these stories center on marriages, but they really, as, as I say over and over on this podcast and everywhere I can, Austin isn't really concerned with writing romances, even though that is part of it. She's really more concerned about these burdens that you talk about, because that is what we spend most of our lives doing. And she she captures that so well. And I love how your description of marriage describes what Austin is doing. In the introduction, I talk about how Mr. Darcy describes his famous library at Pemberley as the work of many generations. Mm. And so I just wanted to ask you as a rabbi and as someone who's so deeply part of this rich Jewish tradition. How do you see yourself as being sort of part of the work of generations? And how can we think about our work as the work of generations, whether we're reading a novel like this or just engaging in everyday ordinary life? Oh my God. So you know what this reminds me of? There are all these controversies and they had like all these like culture war implications recently. You know, you have various academic departments in the classics that are sort of replacing or getting rid of their language requirements. So you had Princeton is doing it and Howard University is doing it, um, basically saying you can be a classics major, but you don't have to learn Greek or Latin. And then, you know, predictably, you sort of had the reaction to that being like, this is an outrage. Oh, my God. And, you know, like, I get it. I'm, I'm a connoisseur of dead languages myself. My grandfather once said about me that I'd make a very conversational corpse. But at the same time, I think you have to ask yourself, like, why are these academic departments getting rid of their language requirements? The obvious answer is that it's a question of supply and demand. Nobody wants to take the time to learn Greek and Latin because it's hard. And so we'd rather, you know, give people some way into classical learning, even if we know they're not going to take it as seriously as anyone in a previous generation would have. And so when I reflected upon that, it struck me as just so tragically, I don't know if ironic is the word. But as I'm reading all these tweets and reading these articles and listening to podcasts about the decline of the classics in American Academy, I have my three daughters downstairs coming home from school. And every single one of them, the youngest, you know, the youngest is in kindergarten. Um, they're going to get out their Bible in Hebrew, no English, and they're just going to read Hebrew and they're going to discuss it. And every single child in their class is doing the exact same thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of the community that I grew up in, sort of the Orthodox Jewish community, but everyone in my community is doing this. Like every kid is doing it. And, you know, you ask yourself, why is it that Jerusalem has managed to cultivate 
a contemporary generation of students who are eager to learn its language. It's not just people who are going to specialize in or major in Jewish studies, but people who are going to be go on to be dentists, lawyers, plumbers, whatever. Like everyone is going to learn. Why did Jerusalem succeed when Athens failed? And the answer to me is very simple. Athens had admirers, but Jerusalem had children. That's the difference. Jerusalem is a meaningful, inspiring, revelatory, spiritual, moral part of people's everyday lives. It's in people's souls. Athens is in people's minds. And we appreciate Athens and we love it, but ultimately that was its failure. You know, so, and that I think leads directly to your question, which is what does it mean to be part of a tradition of generations? Anyone can be an antiquarian, right? Can admire generations past. The transformative part of being a link in a chain of tradition that stretches back and forth, by the way, uh, generations, the transformative part of that comes when you see yourself as family with those people, when you actually feel them in the room with you and you actually feel them caring about you and you care about them and they love you and you love them. There's a wonderful clip. It's like a short clip on YouTube. I encourage all your listeners to listen to it. It's by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. That's a tough name to spell, but it's S-O-L-O-V-E-I-T-C-H-I-K. It's a mouthful. He's one of the preeminent theologians of the 20th, Jewish theologians of the 20th century, one of the greatest Jewish thinkers ever. He was a teacher at Yeshiva University. It was one of my grandfather's greatest teachers. He has this wonderful clip on YouTube where he's discussing, and he's at the time that he made this recording, he must have been in his like late 70s at least, probably in his you know early to mid-80s. And he's still teaching a class full of young 18-year-olds. And he reflects explicitly on how worrying it, it is to him all the time. Like, I'm, an, I'm like an old man. And I'm coming into this room with all these like teenagers who want to learn from me. And I'm like, what do I have to do with them? You know, how can I reach them? And he says, here's what happens. He says, I prepare a lecture on the Talmud. And the way the Talmud works is they're all the great sages of the Talmud. And if you want to study it, you have to study, first of all, the words of the sages. And then there are the medieval commentators on the sages. Names like Rashi, Maimonides, Nachmanides. And then there are the early, the early modern commentators. And then there's the modern commentators. In fact, Rabbi Soloveitchik's own grandfather, Rabbi Chaim, was a legendary dialectical thinker, one of the great thinkers of the early modern period, Jewish and non-Jewish, a brilliant dialogical thinker. So what he says is, here's what happens. I start the lecture. and a student of mine, a young 18-year-old, poses a question, and I don't know the answer. And all of a sudden, we invite Rashi, one of the medieval commentators, into the room, and he gives his opinion. And then Maimonides enters into the room, and he greets the students warmly, and then he offers his opinion. And then the students ask a question of, of Maimonides, and and I, Rabbi Soloveitchik, don't think the question was phrased perfectly, so I help my, my student, and we ask the greats together. And he kind of goes through, and you know what he calls it? He says, and all of a sudden, a symposium of generations has been convened. And the upshot of it is all of a sudden, I'm the youngster in the class along with my students because we're all sitting at the feet of these giants, hundreds of years old. And that's how I find commonality with my students because we're all just babes in the woods learning from these greats and, and, and questioning them. And to me, it's that relationship that we need to capture. It's not just being an, you know, an antiquarian. It's actually feeling and knowing that these greats of the past, it could be in the Jewish tradition, but in the literary tradition, the Shakespeare's, the Jane Austen's, the Confucius's, go down the line. 
it's really feeling that these people are in, in maybe not literally, but literarily. These are my grandparents. I love them. And I actually want to learn from them. I don't agree with them about everything. And they don't want agree with me about everything. But we want to learn from each other. And we genuinely want to engage. To me, it's that intimacy that's required. That love, that patience, that humility, epistemological and moral humility that's required to engage with your, your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents. Like If you just treat these people as like old folks from the past, it's not going to work. It's not enough to be an admirer. You have to be a child. And of course, we see that in Austin because she was a reader in a family of readers and all of that reading across many generations is what made her such a brilliant writer. When you come across these these great writers and thinkers of the past, and Austin is certainly one of them, you just get that sense that they're so steeped in these traditions and, and stylistic innovation. It's just so amazing. It's like listening to Bob Dylan and knowing that he's building on like decades, if not centuries of like Mississippi Delta, gospel, the blues, and knowing that not only is that true, but he knows it's true. That's what makes it so rich. It's the work of many generations. That's right. This was so great. Thanks for fitting it in, Ari. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me on for this. This is awesome. A rabbi and an English professor walk into a podcast about Jane Austen and Jesus and discover that Pride and Prejudice has much to teach us about repentance, atonement, being born again, baptism, and of course, marriage. Wow. Imagine what would have happened if we'd walked into a bar. I'm so thankful that a novel by a Christian writer like Jane Austen can open conversations with such wise and learned teachers like my friend, Rabbi Ari Lamb. I'm glad you joined us for this fascinating discussion on the podcast, but what I really hope listening to us will help and inspire you to do is to go back to your own bookshelf and your own living room and have your own conversations with people in your life who believe differently, live differently, and think differently. I think Austin would be pleased. Jane and Jesus is a Soul Shop original, hosted by me, Karen Swallow Pryor. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Robert Scaramuccia. For more Jane and Jesus content, subscribe to our newsletter at janeandjesus.substack.com and follow us on Twitter at Jane and Jesus. Please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends and family. Music